This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good morning on this Tuesday. So glad you are with us. Good morning. Good morning. We have good news. Big Americans news, are home. News. Yeah. Americans are home. And they just got here. A lot of big news this morning. Let's start with five things to know for this Tuesday, September 19th. This breaking news, they are back. In the United States, those five American citizens who were held prisoner in Iran landed moments ago right near the nation's capital after nearly 24 hours of travel. And this morning, President Biden speaks at the United Nations as he confronts multiple crises on the world stage. Back at home, a shutdown drama in the House. Tempers are flaring with some Republican lawmakers calling their colleagues lunatics, saying it's a clown show. As for the speaker... He says he's not quitting. More auto workers on strike, potentially on the horizon. The union chief says if there is no progress by noon this Friday, more workers will walk off the job. And that missing fighter jet, it has been found in South Carolina. Crews are now working to recover the debris and an investigation is underway into the, quote, mishap that forced the pilot to eject. CNN This Morning starts right now. And of course, this is where we begin with the breaking news. Good news this morning. After five years, after years in prison, five U.S. citizens released by Iran have just landed back on American soil. The plane landed moments ago right near Washington, D.C. Now, under the deal with Tehran, the U.S. released five Iranians from custody and returned $6 billion in frozen oil revenue revenue to Iran. Let's bring in CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, this was a long trip home, but they are on the ground. What's the latest in terms of this exchange? That's right, Phil. So they have just landed just really in the last half an hour after a very long journey. And now they're going to have medical examinations. They are going to, of course, be able to call their loved ones. They are going to be offered a program that reintegrates and reacclimates people who have been in this kind of position back into society because, of course, it has been a very traumatic uh, five years plus for these prisoners who have been detained there in Iran. And so now, really, uh, the work begins, right, in kind of getting these people readjusted to society after uh, years of essentially captivity and being held hostage. Now, the five uh, Iranian-Americans... Iranians that have been released from a U.S. prison. Uh, Some of them are en route back to uh, Iran. Some of them are going to be remaining in the United States. All are nonviolent offenders. They have been convicted or charged with crimes related to sanctions evasion, uh, things like um, violating sanctions and, uh, you know, violating FARA, which is Foreign Asian Registration Act, acting on behalf of Iran. So things that the U.S. does not uh, consider to make them kind of threats to society. So Obviously, that's a key part of the deal. Another key part is what you mentioned, which is that $6 billion in previously restricted Iranian funds that Iran will now be able to use for humanitarian purposes only. And that is going to be closely monitored by Qatar and the U.S. Treasury Department, guys. Um, 
Despite this return, which is good news, there's the cost, right? And the $6 billion of unfrozen Iranian assets that the U.S. has been vehement can only be spent for humanitarian purposes. But the Washington Post editorial board points out this morning, this does free up other funds from Iran to spend on, quote, nefarious purposes, such as buying weapons. A lot of pushback from Republicans on that front. Republicans have really seized on this in recent weeks, ever since the news broke that this deal was in the works. And they are saying essentially that it is equivalent to a ransom payment and that is only going to encourage Iran to take more Americans prisoner in the future. Here's just a couple of Republicans uh, expressing their uh, criticism of this deal. Americans are now more of a target um, for uh, Iran than they were before. Because they took five this time, maybe they'll take ten next time. Unfortunately, the deal that secured their release may very well be the latest example of President Biden rewarding and incentivizing Tehran's bad behavior. Six billion dollars of release funds will only make it far more expensive for every single American who's traveling abroad. It's a bad decision. Now, look, Poppy, Phil, the U.S. has emphasized here that their relationship, the U.S.'s relationship with Iran, is not going to fundamentally change after this. They will continue to hold them accountable, and they do not believe that this money is going to be able to be used for anything other than food, medicine, agricultural devices, but still expect them to face a lot of scrutiny in the next coming weeks uh, and and face a lot of uh, examination, of course, of how Iran is going to use this money. But we should note that the U.S. has also already issued new sanctions on Iran just in the last day. Uh, Expect Iran to not be very happy about that either, Poppy Phil. Okay, Natasha, thank you for all that reporting. Well, also this morning, President Biden is now preparing to deliver a foreign policy speech to the United Nations General Assembly, an annual endeavor. It's going to be in just a few hours. He's expected to tout his administration's accomplishments around the world and call on member nations to rally behind Ukraine. But there are concerns here in town that the remarks won't necessarily pack a huge punch, particularly with several key heads of state not even in attendance. CNN's Kayla Tausche joins me now. Welcome. Uh, it's good to see you up in New York. Good to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. This, the, the idea that some, several key leaders, including Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, others, some key U.S. allies as well, are not going to physically be present. What does the White House say about that? Well, they say the important thing is showing up, and that's what President Biden is doing by being here, the third speech to the United Nations General Assembly of his presidency, and the second since Russia invaded Ukraine. Officials say that the president's going to be talking about a number of things. The need to get more aid to Ukraine, uh, the importance of democratic values around the world, and the need to mobilize resources for development, for infrastructure, for climate change. But there is the question of whether that message is going to fall flat when you have the U.S. is the only permanent member of the U.N. Security Council that is in attendance this week and with criticism from a lot of smaller nations that the U.S. has been focusing on Ukraine too much at all costs and at the expense of other important issues around the world. Now, the administration says that's not true. That's one of the reasons why President Biden is going to be meeting with five leaders of Central Asian nations for the first time to talk about the need to counter China, especially in that region. And he'll also be meeting with uh, Brazil's president to talk about some labor issues in that country and also the prime minister of Israel for the first time since the controversial ju- judicial reform process moved on in that country. So they say he's still focusing on the matters at hand, highlighting important things from the U.S.'s agenda. But they acknowledge that you know perhaps the conversation, the condemnation, will not land as as heavily as they might hope it would. What about politically? I mean, he's dealing with some pretty rough polling numbers. How does this play for him politically? 
Well, it depends on how he shows. I mean, certainly the president is in his comfort zone most when he's yeah. on the world stage. This is uh, these international engagements are usually a feather in his cap, but it's the domestic developments that move the poll numbers here. And so perhaps for the burgeoning campaign effort, less important is, you know, what he's able to achieve at the United Nations, which doesn't always resonate with the American people, nor does the G20 or any of the forthcoming summits that are packing the calendar. And more important is you know, whether the U.S. can avoid a government shutdown, You know yeah. whether some of these domestic agenda items can get across the finish line, how people feel when they start repaying their student loans in just October a few 1st. weeks' time. Yeah. So there are a lot of other issues that are going to be um, pestering the president from the polling perspective, mm-hmm. but certainly they hope that this is going to be one event that's going to be in the positive side of the ledger. It's interesting. As he does this on the world stage, we know now Trump's going to go talk to Union auto workers next week on the domestic stage. It'll be interesting. Kayla, thank you very much. Thank Let's you. bring in Chief National Security Correspondent and Anchor, Jim Shudo at the table, and Bloomberg Editor and Foreign Affairs Columnist Bobby Ghosh. Jim, you take issue with uh, some of the criticism here from Republicans on this Iran deal. Um, it was interesting. Brett McGurk, National Security Coordinator for the Middle East, talked to Jason Rezaian from Washington Post, who'd mm-hmm. been held in Iran for yeah. more than 500 days. And Jason asked him, are you hopeful that we will see a day that Iran stops taking hostages like this? His answer, no, not under the current system. So to the critics who say this doesn't deter Iran. Here's the trouble is that hostage diplomacy has become a thing, not just Iran, but Russia, China, that they take Americans and people of other nationalities in effect as collateral, as hostages that they could gain something, either to pressure the United States or to gain something in return, prisoners of their own nationalities or money or other other concessions. This, this is becoming more of a weapon, not less of a weapon. Invariably, and, and by the way, both Republican and Democratic administrations have made deals with Iran and other countries, and Russia, by the way, yep. to release, in which case you, you give something up to do that, right? The argument is, by doing that, you encourage the next hostage to be taken. And there's certainly some truth to that. Uh, the flip side is that how do you get Americans home, right? And, and invariably, it's going to require giving something in return. Then it becomes how much is too much. The, the trouble is, this has become a thing, right? And countries are taking advantage of it. Uh, and the U.S. is trying to be tough, trying to deter it, trying to disincentivize it. But when the choice is between what the administration will say, when the choice is between taking Americans home or leaving them where they are, they'd rather get Americans home. Bobby, when it comes to the president's remarks today, all presidents, but certainly this president, used the the U.N. General Assembly's speech, the annual speech, as kind of an effort, an opportunity to put a marker down, right? Kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture, lay out their theory of the case. Um, I, I was struck by something that former Vice President Mike Pence said on the campaign trail. Take a listen. Some Republican candidates, including my former running mate, are abandoning the traditional conservative position of American leadership on the world stage and embracing a new and dangerous form of isolationism. I believe isolationism is just another word for appeasement. And let's be clear, appeasement will not make America any safer. In fact, Appeasement would only make America and the world more dangerous. I'm not sure there's many issues where the former vice president and President Biden align. I think generally America's role in the world is to some degree one of them. I guess my question is in the audience today, the kind of uh, intra-domestic warfare that's been going on about the direction of the country and foreign policy. What do other countries think of that? 
Well, the other countries will be watching. They'll, they'll know that this country is now entering the presidential election cycle. Um, because the, the candidate on the other side is most likely to be Donald Trump, uh, they will be bracing uh, for that possibility. They will be looking at Biden's poll numbers that we were talking about earlier and, and wondering. And probably quite a lot of the uh, folks in the audience will be worrying about the possibility of Trump coming back. Not so much because uh, of the, 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 they care one way or the other uh, about domestic politics in the United States, but about the unpredictability of, of uh, Donald Trump. The fact that, you know, if Trump were to come back, that would, that would throw all their calculations uh, off because they just don't know yeah. what to expect. Biden uh, is predictable. Biden is the devil you know versus the devil you don't. So a lot of people in the audience will be, look, will be paying attention not so much to what Biden says, but what they're hearing on the sidelines, what they're reading in the in the American newspapers, what their cab driver is telling them on their way to the United uh, Nations. That's what they'll be looking at. And, and that's something I hear frequently when I speak to, to leaders in Europe or in Asia, is, is this idea of a pendulum swing in the U.S. approach to the world, that with each election, you know, under Trump, you have a certain approach, you know, America first, uh, however you want to describe it. Biden is more traditional, old-school, bipartisan. America is a leader in the world, standing up for democracy values, et cetera. And then this concern, you have 2024 coming, that, well, the pendulum might swing back again. So, so what exactly is America's position in the world? And Biden today is going to make the case for the kind of old school approach. Guys, stick around. Thank you very much for the reporting. Jim, Bobby and Kayla, we have a lot ahead. Well, Kevin McCarthy is shrugging off threats to oust him as House Speaker as he grapples with GOP infighting and a looming government shutdown. United Auto Workers Union is now threatening to expand this strike. New deadline Detroit's big three automakers are facing. That's ahead. But we just need better wages. We need to be able to support our families. Equal pay. We shouldn't have to choose between paying a mortgage and paying a car note. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, this morning in how the House Republican Conference turns, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy still clinging to the short-term government funding deal reached by six Republicans over the weekend. 
despite multiple warnings from multiple conservatives, they're going to oppose it. Now, McCarthy can only afford to lose four votes without relying on Democrats. And even if it does somehow pass the House, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer warning, it will never pass the Senate. Seeing as Lauren Fox joins us now. Lauren, um, this is a mess. Uh, we've known it was going to be a mess, but I think it's messier than the mess that we thought, uh, if that's plausible. How does this end? Yeah, Phil, this is really starting to erupt with House conservatives going after one another on Twitter. You saw bitter infighting yesterday, and this is because three members of the House Freedom Caucus negotiated this deal with the Main Street Caucus, and it is not being well received. Like you noted, there are now more than a dozen conservatives who say they're either going to vote no against this proposal or are leaning against voting for this proposal. Meanwhile, leadership still trying to bring this to the floor as soon as Thursday. And all Republicans are starting to believe a shutdown is not only looming, but likely. Here's what they said. This is not uh, conservative republicanism. This is stupidity. They don't know how to take yes for an answer. Uh, It's a clown show. If you want to have a stronger hand, run better candidates and win more elections. You keep running lunatics, you're going to be in this position. I think we're headed for a government shutdown with no end in sight. Uh, Part of it is we're not having real conversations. Take a shot at me. I'm going to say something. You know, what did I did did we go through this back in January? Six, two, two, seventy five, baby. I ain't worried about none of that stuff. House Republicans, Phil, are going to gather for their conference meeting this morning. That is when they are hoping to sort out some of these differences. But they have such a long way to go at this point, Phil. It's hard to imagine how they get this bill on the floor as it's written now without some significant changes if McCarthy thinks he's going to get the votes. I got to be honest, Fox, we need to get an ISO of Manu's face when he and Byron Donalds were going back and forth with one another. Uh, You guys had some great, the Hill team had some great reporting last night about Republicans considering working with Democrats to actually move this forward. I feel like we hear that every single time we get into this and it never comes to fruition. What's the deal with that? Yeah, I mean, you have a number of Republicans like Mike Lawler who are starting to say, if Republicans aren't going to work together, then we can just cross the aisle and get some Democratic votes. But it is a little more complicated than that. And Democrats that I'm talking to say that there are some procedural steps that Lawler would have to take in order to get that process rolling. It's a rare procedural tool that you can use on the floor to try to force a vote on something. But there may not actually be enough time. And there's kind of always this open question of, are you just trying to whip votes? for Kevin McCarthy on this Republican CR by threatening to work with Democrats? Or are you actually serious that you're going to cross the aisle, you're going to work with us, and we're going to get this across the finish line? I think that there's a lot of question marks on that this morning. We're just going to have to wait and see how it plays out over the next 24 hours, Phil. No question. Lauren Fox, great reporting as always. Thank you. Poppy? All right. uh, Now to the auto strike. There is a new deadline. That is Friday. Watch. If we don't make serious progress by noon on Friday, September 22nd, more locals will be called on to stand up and join the strike. That will mark more than a week since our first members walked out. And that will mark more than a week of the big three failing to make progress in negotiations toward reaching a deal that does right by our members. That is the union president, and the message comes nearly as nearly 13,000 auto workers start their fifth day on the picket lines. Our Gabe Cohen is live outside one of the striking plants in Toledo. The, I mean, the strategy here, and they've conceded this, is get leverage by these sort of surprise strikes at all different plants. And now they say this is going to expand 
on Friday if there's no deal. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Poppy. And it really refutes uh, some of the reports, some of the uh, claims we had heard in recent days that they had been taking these steps in the right direction. We had heard, seen statements from the big three or sources at the union saying that there were at least semi-productive conversations happening. Uh, and yet we saw Sean Fain come out late last night with this new deadline, noon on Friday, saying more uh, units like the one here in Toledo could go on strike, which would mean more facilities may shut down. And as you heard him say, he said it would mark a week uh, of really little progress in negotiations, uh, really pointing the finger at the big three. So, again, uh, it, it says that little progress is being made at the table. We know there's no main table negotiations happening today. Uh, they're scheduled with General Motors and Ford for tomorrow and then Stellantis on Thursday. And right now, uh, nearly 3,000 workers across the, uh, across the U.S. are on strike. I want to actually bring one of them in right now, Annette. If you want to join me for a second, um, you're the strike captain here. I want to get your thoughts on this news, Sean Fain's announcement yesterday that more facilities could go on strike this Friday if there's not progress. Uh, what do you think? It's a scary. It's a scary situation for Toledo and Detroit. We're the big three, and this is the money maker for all of us. So we need to. We need to. You, are, you need to. Are, that's okay. Are, are you worried? Are you worried that there hasn't been much progress at this point? Yes, yes. I think it could go. To me, my personal opinion, I feel like we're heading the way GM was a, uh, three, four years ago when they were on strike for eight weeks. I'm afraid that could be us. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Again, again. Sorry, there's no time. Um, th again, Poppy, this new deadline Friday at noon, uh, and we'll see if more facilities go on strike. It's really interesting because there was that strike against GM in 2019, and she seems obviously concerned about sort of the broader economic impact of all big three automakers in this strike. Thank you, Gabe, for the reporting. Well, former President Trump is ditching the second primary debate and instead visiting those strike, striking auto workers this time in Detroit, but the union head blasting it. Also, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau with allegations saying, quote, there is credible intelligence linking India to the assassination of a prominent religious leader on Canadian soil. We have all of that reporting in the international rift ahead. Well, the second Republican debate next week in California will once again be Trumpless. The Republican frontrunner instead plans to head to Detroit to inject himself into the auto workers' strike. Now, we're told he'll deliver a primetime speech in front of current and former members of the auto workers' union. That's all according to a source familiar with his plans. And we're learning this morning that the Trump campaign has produced a radio ad that will begin running today in Detroit and Toledo, Ohio. The ad designed to align the former president with the auto workers, even as it doesn't mention the strike specifically. The campaign is also considering the possibility of having Trump make an appearance at the picket line. Joining us now, White House and politics editor Bloomberg, Mario Parker, and national political correspondent for The New York Times, Lisa Lair. Guys, thank you. Welcome to the table. Um, Mario, nobody covers UAW and the strike like your organization. Mm -hmm. I've kind of like lived and died by their coverage over the course of the last several days. Trump's decision to try and insert himself, not just through statements, but also by physically being there, his campaign trying to take advantage, I think, from a Michigan perspective. What does that do to those dynamics on the ground right now? Well, what Trump's trying to do is drive a wedge between the rank-and-file leadership uh, with Sean Fain, the UAW's president, right? We know, Phil, from years of covering Trump that 
the rank and file hasn't always followed the direction of the leadership, right? Trump feels as though he's uh, been able to connect with those blue collar workers with his brand of populism. And so what you're seeing is he's him trying to drive a wedge between both the leadership, but also drive a wedge between unions and Biden in a key swing state. But what's also sort of interesting and different this time around is that Sean Fain is the first union leader of the UAW in, in many years to actually be elected directly by the union workers, right? before it was sort of their heads that elected him. So it's different. He seems more aligned with them now, which might change the dynamic, but also the fact that Trump only lost Michigan by, what, three points? And now you've got this opening, don't you, for Republicans, not only in presidential race, but in the Senate race. And that's the that's the key, Poppy, because Trump right now, he's criticizing Sean Fain, right? They're kind of in a war of words right now at this point. But as you mentioned, Again, uh, he he won Michigan in 2016. Democrats have done a lot over the last four years or so to try to shore that up, uh, secure it. Whitmer, for example, Governor Whitmer had a, a resounding re-election as the well. And it's one of, Michigan is arguably the crown jewel of those five to seven battleground states that Trump will need to win um, if he's able to, again, uh, you know, upset Biden. Michigan would be a key path key to President Biden's path to 270, uh, that kind of blue wall that he re-implemented back in 2020. I was struck last night because apparently I can't break away from the White House. I was reading the, the pool reports from our you colleague. You see Kevin the emails Lip we get. <laughs> from our colleague, Kevin Lip Mario can identify with this. Um, from our colleague, Kevin Liptak, from the fundraisers. And fundraisers is, we have learned, where the president is kind of looser, more willing to, to speak freely. But it also seemed like he was road testing to some degree, an argument that I've heard from advisors, but has been less forthcoming publicly. And I want to ask you about this because you had this great story over the weekend about the difference between where Democratic National Party leadership is and where actual voters in their party are. The president said, uh, in part, and this is behind the scenes, quote, a lot of people seem focused on my age. Believe me, I know better than anyone. When this nation was flat on its back, I knew what to do. When democracy was at stake, I knew what to do. Also had very sharp criticism and pointed criticism of the former president. Almost head out, taking on the age issue head on. Exactly. And that's a fascinating little twist in this whole ongoing question about the president's age. We know from surveys, from focus groups, from interviews with voters, that this is a top concern for rank and file Democratic voters, that I think there was sort of Biden made this implicit promise in the first run to Democratic primary voters where he said, look, elect me and I'll stabilize things for you. They saw Trump as this existential threat. I'll beat him. I'm your best shot at beating him. And I think a lot of those voters didn't really think about a second term or the possibility of an 86-year-old second-term president. And now they are. And they're concerned. And, and the, pro the reason the issue is so salient is it's something everybody knows. Everybody has an elderly parent or a grandparent or they're aging themselves. Everybody knows about age. And so the decision by uh, the president to start to move towards taking um, this issue on head-on, as you point out, is really a, a kind of acknowledgement of how uh, damaging this is with his base in some ways. I want to talk about Ron DeSantis and some of his biggest supporters. I was so struck by this recent interview that Ken Griffin, who, you know, big money guy, CEO of Citadel Capital, and, and was a big money supporter of DeSantis, he's holding back right now. And here's how he explained it on CNBC. Let's play it. The ongoing battle with Disney, I think, is pointless. In fact, it doesn't reflect well on the ethos of Florida. You know, the, the mayor of Miami-Dade is, is a Democrat. She's really exceptional. 
And you know what she talks about with me? How can we make this a great state to do business in? Ron needs to stay on that talking point. I don't know his strategy. I, I, I'm in the same camp you are. It's not clear to me what voter base he's attending, intending to appeal to. Uh, uh-oh, if you're DeSantis' camp and you're listening to that and you think other high big donors are listening to that, what do you do? No, I mean, it's a, it's a code red at this point. And what's key that Ken Griffith said was that he doesn't know his strategy. Yeah. Well, DeSantis' strategy was to try to aggressively outflank uh, former President Donald Trump to his right. But what that does is essentially undermine his general election argument, right? He's drawn headlines for fighting with Disney, for critical race theory, for a six-week abortion ban. And if, if, if uh, big, don't, deep, deep-pocketed donors like Ken Griffin and others, what they do is analyze data, right? The latest, dat- latest data point that they have is the 2022 uh, midterm election, right? So these issues that DeSantis is outflanking Trump to the right on are the same issues that alienate independent voters. Hence, for Wall Street, do you put your money on someone who's trending downward? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many behind-the-scenes conversations before he went public like that? How many phone calls? Yeah, that's the big question. To say I don't know the strategy? Whoa. Yeah. Lisa, Thank Mario, you guys. thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So this story, we talked about it yesterday. We do have a big development. That F-35 fighter jet that vanished for more than 24 hours, it has been found That's in good. South Carolina. That's good news. But, I mean, still the question this morning, how does a multi-million dollar military jet go missing? We'll talk with a retired F-35 pilot about that. And the leader of the Wagner Mercenary Group may be dead, but it's business as usual for his troops in Africa. In a CNN exclusive, Clarissa Ward reports on the ground from the Central African Republic. You don't want to miss this. Stay with us. Welcome back. New this morning, India has expelled a senior Canadian diplomat in retaliation after Canada did the same just yesterday. This follows allegations from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that, quote, credible intelligence links New Delhi to the murder of a Sikh leader. Hardeep Singh Niger was shot to death outside of a Sikh temple in British Columbia back in June. In Canada, he was a citizen in India, a wanted terrorist. Paula Newton here with us in studio to explain What has happened? It is astounding, honestly. This is the kind of reaction that you might have if you were Canada to a rogue state. No, this is an ally of not just Canada, but obviously the United States as well. Canada decided enough was enough. They decided to go public with their allegations with the Indian government. When they didn't get the reaction they were looking for, they went public. In a startling accusation, Canadian officials say the killing of a prominent Canadian Sikh leader in the province of British Columbia in June may have been an assassination carried out on the orders of the Indian government. Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he confronted India's Prime Minister with the allegations in a face-to-face meeting just last week as Narendra Modi hosted the G20 summit. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. 
The killing of Hardeep Singh Najjar remains unsolved. Royal Canadian Mounted Police say Najjar suffered multiple gunshot wounds while sitting in a vehicle outside a Sikh temple in Surrey, British Columbia. Homicide investigators say two mass suspects, described as heavier set males, fled on foot and then possibly in this 2008 silver Toyota Camry. In the earliest days after the homicide, protesters demanded justice, saying the killing was politically motivated and chilling retribution for Nijar's activism and support for Sikh independence in India. At the time, RCMP would not comment on a possible motive for the killing. But now Canadian officials are taking swift action based on their suspicions. The head of India's spy agency in Canada, one of India's top diplomats there, has been expelled. In a statement, the Indian government responded, saying the allegations are unsubstantiated and accused Canada of sheltering terrorists. This is obviously also an issue for the United States. Trudeau said he briefed Joe Biden at the G20 summit about the allegations and the credible evidence that they believe they have. And this is going to be a continuing story. Bob. What a development, Paula. Thank you for the reporting. Phil. I want to bring Jim Shooter back in now. Um, this is remarkable yeah. on its face. W what's your take on how this could possibly happen? Listen, we talked top of this hour about hostage diplomacy. Countries like Iran, North Korea, Russia, China taking hostages, in effect, uh, as a tool of, of influence around the world. This is extraterritorial assassination. Who? That's the allegation. By the way, I don't think the Canadian... Prime Minister goes to the floor of Parliament unless they have very good intelligence establishing that and sending their head of intelligence to India to make a, a formal complaint about this. Who else does this kind of thing? Russia does this kind of thing. In London, Skripal, Litvinenko, uh, China does this, uh, seeking out its nationals around the world. This, if true, is an alarming step up. And India, by the way, a country that the U.S. has tried to establish uh, closer relations with, uh, the world's largest democracy, you hear that all the time, this is not democratic behavior, right, to have done this, particularly on the soil of an ally in Canada. Yeah. And just uh. announced a few weeks after hosting the G20 summit exactly. as well. Yeah, Jim, thank you very much. Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom calling out former President Trump's claims that some Democrats support abortion rights up to and after birth. Ardana Bash sat down with Newsom for an exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview. So is the it the government's role then? I know you, you said it's, it's up to women. To make that decision. So there should be nothing on the books? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Can you just be clear about what limits on abortion should be? It's a political thing. People are not seeking abortion. But what is the what is the policy? The what should it be? The policy, it's not up to Donald Trump or me. It's up to you, to women that have to bear that responsibility uniquely and distinctively. That was California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom in an exclusive sit-down interview with our colleague Dana Bash. In that interview, he also criticized former President Trump's recent claim that some Democrats support abortion rights up to and after birth. Listen. 
And the reality is, it's a canard. It's a political frame. It's total BS. And it's exactly where they need to go because they know they've gone too far on the other side. There has to be some kind. Well, let me just talk about your state of California. As you well know, there is a law in books that preceded you uh, that says that you can have an abortion up until viability, which is about 24 weeks. That's right. Is that something that you that's, support that's personally? That's in statute in the state of California. That said, there was a constitutional amendment that we placed on the ballot that, that has some nuance in it. And so that's an area that's being adjudicated in public opinion and likely will ultimately be so adjudicated is in the is it the government's role then? I know you, you said it's, it's up to women. It's not to make that decision. So there should be nothing no, that, on the books? This is, this is a canard. This is a false flag. This is where they need to go in order to get out of the mess they've created because they don't believe in fundamental choice and freedom for women. They don't, period, full stop. I just want to be clear because people are going to be listening very carefully to what you're saying. Yeah. You do not believe it is the role of government nationally or, or state government no, to, have, to have any limits on the books I, legally. The state that- of California has long believed in viability. I've long believed in viability. We went forward with a constitutional amendment that's created some questions as it relates to this. My, my point is no one wants to see late, late-term abortions. Mm-hmm. No one's out there promoting that. That's what the Democratic Party's position is. It's not what my personal position is. In those rare and extremely rare and personal circumstances, one thing I absolutely believe, Donald Trump shouldn't be making that decision. I sure as hell not, should not be making that decision. Joining us now is CNN Chief Political Correspondent and Anchor of Inside Politics, Dana Bash. Good morning. Of State of morning. the Union. Welcome. It's great to see you. It was nice a great interview. It was a fascinating interview with a critical player on the Democratic side of the aisle. That back and forth, that exchange, um, what was your take on that answer? I honestly wasn't sure what he was going to say, because I've talked to some Democrats who say that we, Democratic Party and Democratic leaders, need to be more clear just to get the get it off the table, to be more clear about the the outside limits. Okay, obviously, most Democrats support support abortion rights, but uh, because Republicans are coming at them and they're trying to make it an issue. We saw that with the former president over the weekend, but he was just adding on to a lot of Republicans saying, oh, Democrats want to have abortion uh, on demand and abortion until uh, until after birth and all of those things, which, let's be clear, almost all Democrats do not support that. So I thought maybe he would say, my state of California, the, uh, the law is viability, that's where I stand. He did say it is his personal opinion, and that's generally where it should be. But when it comes to the law of the land, when it comes to what sh- the government should and should not do, you saw there, he didn't want to go there. He wants to, uh, he wanted to make it clear that it, this is a medical issue and not a legal issue. And I, I honestly wasn't sure which way he was going to go on that. But he, he did lean into that. And look, when you look at the polls and more importantly, look at what happened in 2022, there is a, a, an energy among Democrats and even some independents to say, stay out of my doctor's office. Mm-hmm. And so that's likely why he was going. You were surprised? I just thought it was ca- very cautious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought it was a great back and forth. And I think it was illuminating both because of where he personally stands, but also it gets at why when people ask Democratic leaders to take a more firm stance on a specific timetable, mm-hmm. um, there's a reason why they don't. And I think 
that's interesting, given the political energy behind it inside their party. But he's not wrong that Republicans are trying very hard to turn the tables on Democrats on abortion. Oh, no, not at all. Because they got their clocks cleaned politically on this uh, in a way that they didn't expect in 2020. Which may explain why Trump is talking the way he's talking exactly. right now about the issue. OK, Biden's age. So many people had been looking, had, had, are, I don't know, looking at Newsom as, will he run? Should he throw his hat in the ring? But you talked to him about the biggest, one of the biggest concerns among Democrats, which is age, which is Biden's age. Let's listen to this exchange. I couldn't imagine three years ago that this president could accomplish so much in such a short period of time. I mean that. If this political season is all about a celebrity, with all due respect, we had a celebrity for four years. It didn't go well. And so I want a seasoned pro that knows how to get things done. I'm a little old fashioned. I want a guy who produces results and the results are in. It's been a master class. There's simply no administration in my lifetime that's been more effective producing more substantive results. A master class. Mm-hmm. This is a big reason, the main, well, one of the main reasons why Gavin Newsom is out like he is now. We didn't see him out very much on a national level uh, prior to, I don't know, the last couple of months. And re- I would even say the last few weeks. And there is a view uh, among, I think, a fair number of Democrats that that the message, that the Biden-Harris message isn't getting out, isn't penetrating. And he is a, a unique messenger. He is somebody who now the Biden campaign does see as somebody who can say what he just said, who can make the argument uh, for why the first two and a half years from the point of view of Democrats should have been, should be something to celebrate. And he deserves, they both deserve a, a second term. And uh, he's trying to fill a messaging vacuum. And of course, that leads to the obvious question, which is, is it, does it help him in the long term? Maybe. I mean, as you heard in that interview, he denied any interest in 2024, which he's done in the past. He even said that he hasn't even thought about running for president ever. Ever? Have, what have do you thought about think? it? What? What do you think about I have that? No idea. I cannot get in Gavin Newsom. <laughs> I would never. I just think politicians, most politicians, politicians think about are never calculated. He said, "Well, you'll appreciate this." He said, "No, I'm not a senator." Which is, you know, the joke yeah. is every senator looks in the mirror and sees a president. It, well, I know we got to go, but when you when they announced that you were doing this interview, I heard from a lot of Republicans saying, "Oh, here we go! Like this is the start. This is the Newsom move." I was like, right. "No, it's the opposite. It's literally the op- opposite." It, it, the exactly. Biden campaign wants this. That's exactly right. For now. For now. now. (laughs) It was a great interview. Dana, thanks Thanks. for coming up. Good to see you guys. This morning, five Americans are back on U.S. soil after spending years wrongfully detained in Iran. Ahead will be joined by one of those Americans' family members before they finally reunite. The Cleveland Browns losing to the Steelers last night, but more importantly, they likely lost their star running back to a season-ending injury. Andy Scholes joins us with more. Another another one after Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, another one, guys. I mean, it's just a brutal night for the Cleveland Browns. You know, Nick Chubb, one of the best running backs in the NFL, and he's arguably the Browns' best player. And in the second quarter last night in Pittsburgh, Chubb getting the handoff here. Going to go about five yards, and he's tackled his knee, completely bends the wrong way. Chubb, he knew it immediately. Same knee that he had to have reconstructive surgery on back in college. 
Chubb eventually carted off the field after the game. Head coach Kevin Stefanski, he called it a significant injury, and Chubb's teammate Amari Cooper said it's just devastating for the team. Obviously, you know, it's a huge loss. Um, Nick is like the engine of the team, you know what I mean? Um, best player on the team, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's tragic, you know. Um, very unfortunate. I'm very uh, sad for Nick, sad for his team, losing Nick. Not only is, not, is it not ideal, but it's, this is a tragedy. Now, the Browns did have the lead halfway through the fourth quarter, but the Steelers' defense coming through. Alex Highsmith, the strip sack on Deshaun Watson. T.J. Watt scoops it up, takes it in for the touchdown. That would win it for the Steelers' final that game, 26-22. Now, we had a doubleheader Monday night football last night. The other matchup, an NFC South showdown between the Saints and the Panthers. The score tied at six halfway through the third. Check out this catch from Chris Olave. Bobbles it before bringing it in. Seven plays later, Tony Jones Jr. is going to run the ball in for a touchdown to give the Saints a 13-6 lead. Jones also adding another score in the fourth quarter to put this game away. New Orleans would win 20-17 to improve to 2-0 for the first time since 2013. But, guys, you said it at the beginning. Two weeks in the NFL season, Aaron Rodgers going down in week one. Now Nick Chubb in week two. Been rough so far. Yeah, it has. But Chris Olave, as Poppy was just noting, Ohio State Buckeye. Right? Yeah. You were just Papa was noting that? As, no, I, was, good. Good as I was just noting. Was just saying. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. We appreciate it. All right. All right. CNN This Morning continues right now. President Biden steps back onto the world stage, addressing the General Assembly at the United Nations. We'll hear from Zelensky addressing the UN General Assembly for the first time. What will the United States of America do when Putin reaches the Baltic states? He will. Five American hostages wrongly detained inside Iran for years touched down on U.S. soil. Incentivizing Tehran's bad behavior has left Americans less secure. Five Americans are coming home to their family. Every American should be celebrating that right now. Trump trying to put the nail in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign coffin over a six-week abortion ban. That I think what he far. did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. All pro-lifers should know he's preparing to sell you out. The race in Iowa is a furious one for second place. So happy to bring you the images we are about to show you. This is breaking news. It is brand new video. Look at this. This is the first we're seeing of five Americans freed from prison in Iran, finally landing moments ago on U.S. soil. Ahmad Shargi, Murad Tabaz, and Siamak Namazi, along with two other Americans who have not publicly been named their request. They all arrived right near Washington, D.C., moments ago flying from Tehran to Qatar, stopping there. Then on to the U.S., they were released as part of a wider deal that includes the United States unfreezing $6 billion in Iranian funds. These freed Americans will have the option to participate in a Department of Defense program to help them acclimate back to life. Remember, uh, Namazi was behind bars in Avin prison for almost eight years. We're going to be speaking with his uncle straight ahead. Separate the policy and the politics for a minute and families being reunited. Humanity. It's a good day. It's a good yeah. day. Well, just hours from now, President Biden is set to speak on the world stage at the United Nations, and it comes at a moment of global crisis or crises. There's a brutal grinding war in Ukraine with no end in sight, catastrophic climate disasters around the world. The Earth just had its hottest summer on record. And there's a growing migrant crisis, just to name a few. But several key world leaders won't even be there at the U.N. Russia, China, France, the U.K., 
their leaders are sitting this one out. It's casting doubt about how much can actually be accomplished this week. CNN Chief National Security Correspondent and anchor Jim Shudo with us in studio. Jim, thank you for being here. We want to walk through the issues that Biden is likely to tackle mm. in this speech today. Big picture, he's going to make a pitch for democracy, yeah. in effect. And that's the dividing line that the Biden administration sees. And they're not alone in that. You, you have the U.S., its allies in the West and the East aligned against Russia and China and Iran and North Korea in places like Ukraine, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also concerns about uh, Chinese aspirations for Taiwan, uh, Iran's uh, various aggression in the region there. He's going to say, we need to stand for this. We've successfully stood for it in Ukraine. And here are the other ways we're trying to do that, that this is a defining battle. That's going to be his pitch. Uh, and he's going to say, of course, there's a, there's a heck of a lot more work to do. Uh President Zelensky of Ukraine is here. He's not only meeting with Biden, he's meeting with congressional leaders. I thought this exchange between Scott Pelley of 60 Minutes mm. and Zelensky in this piece that aired Sunday night was really telling in terms of what does the U.S. do in terms of further support. Let's listen to this. He's waiting for the United States to become less stable. He thinks that's going to happen during the U.S. election. He'll be looking for instability in Europe and the United States of America. He will use the risk of using nuclear weapons to fuel that instability. He will keep on threatening. I think it was notable that Zelensky didn't say yes directly when he was asked about this level of aid continuing from the U.S. He's aware of the politics here, yeah. uh, that, that you have opposition from the Republican Party. So some, not exhaustion, I don't think that's the word, but, but declining interest and support from the American people. So he's conscious that it won't be as easy to get that support uh, from now going forward. It's not going to disappear. But he also, as he said there, is worried, and he's not alone. I, I speak to uh, officials in Europe, uh, many of our allies who look at this election as defining, they are concerned, and concern is not the strongest word I've heard over there about the possibility of Trump returning and what that means for the U.S. position in the world. Uh, membership in NATO, uh, support for Ukraine, uh, support for Taiwan. So he's not alone in looking at that election. By the way, as you know, it's CNN's reporting that Vladimir Putin is waiting for the election, too, and hoping that he might get a friendlier person in office, or at least that's his perception. I mean, everyone will remember, Jim, you were there. You were in Ukraine when, when Russia invaded. And to think of where we are now and to think of Zelensky coming again to the United States yeah. and to the global stage to make the case, it's just stunning. As their offensive continues, yeah. the spring offensive continues, but very slowly. It is. And, and I think, step out for, for some perspective, of course, in the early days of the war, the expectation was they were going to lose, right? Yeah. That, that Russia was going to... Take even weeks, days. Days, three days to get Kiev, right? That didn't happen. So so perspective-wise, it's been a remarkable defense of the country. Uh, and, and Ukraine still stands, right? Yes. And, it's, and, and NATO stands together with Ukraine, and NATO has expanded. That's big picture. But, but the fact is, the, the counteroffensive has not met expectations, uh, neither Western expectations nor Ukrainian expectations. It's making some progress. But when I speak to officials here in the U.S. and Europe, the, what they will say privately is... They don't expect Ukraine to win this war anytime soon, right? And, and what they'll say even more quietly is that Ukraine is basically fighting for bargaining position right now, that they, they, they find it probably too much of a stretch to imagine Ukraine gets back all the territory Russia ha has taken. They're not going to say that to Zelensky. In fact, Zelensky says the opposite. He says, and Crimea. He does. 
But when you speak privately to U.S. officials, they don't look at that as an achievable goal, at least this year, next year, perhaps beyond. Uh, Jim, thank you. Join yeah. us back at the table. We'll continue this discussion. Phil. All right. As you guys come back to the table, I want to bring in Chief International Anchor Christiana Mampour and CNN Chief Political Correspondent, Anchor of Inside Politics, Dana Bash. Um, Christian, you had this very stark interview with U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to talk about your reaction to uh, the sound from Zelensky. Yeah. Well, look, the sound is really interesting and it shows that he's got his real ear to the ground of American politics and politics around NATO who are trying to help him. The fact of the matter is that the Congress still supports aid to Ukraine, both houses, majorities, okay? Big deal. Um, Obviously, people get tired. The other fact of the matter is that it is true that you can see the map. Russia occupies still quite a lot there. But unfortunately, Ukraine, despite all the help that it has had with Biden's leadership and the other allies coming together, it's not enough and it's not soon enough. They have no air cover to conduct this counteroffensive in a way that any other military would be expected to conduct a counteroffensive. The United States never goes in on the ground without having claimed air superiority before it does that. How do you expect the Ukrainians to push forward with all this fancy new technology that they have without having some cover? That's a problem. The other issue is that even the Secretary General and many of the international leaders who I speak to will not say that now is the time to negotiate because they know it's not. There's no parity on the ground. There's no, you know, ability for Ukraine to actually negotiate. Putin shows absolutely no sign of wanting to negotiate. And the Secretary General of NATO, who I'm going to be speaking to today, has already said this is bound to go on for a long time. So if the West wants Ukraine to win, the very simple equation is they're going to have to beef up what they give Ukraine in order for it to win or in order for it to make enough of a dent to tell Putin a story that is different than the one he expects. Is there, Dana, sort of a, an autopsy, if you will, internally in the administration and among members of Congress to why did we wait? Because almost everything Zelensky has asked for, the United States has ended up giving. Just about six months after he has asked yeah, for I don't it. Know, I, I don't know that there has been an autopsy uh, of such yet. There probably will be. But, you know, there has been so much, and, and you both know this so well, so much... Uh, hand-wringing about when you give Zelensky what he wants, how much is that going to poke the bear? How much is that going to make Putin say, I don't know, this is, you know, you're putting your thumb on the scale. And then you're right, they end up doing it because the thumb is on the scale. I mean, this is, this is something that uh, the president says very clearly isn't just about Ukraine, the country, it's about the notion of democracy, full stop. Can I just add just there, because it's so vital, because Putin has used this leverage to scare the bejesus out Mm -hmm. of everybody. So he'll buy them. Including Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. Yes. We don't want to start World War III. Putin, Mm -hmm. most people believe, will not do this. The Chinese have basically told him that's a step too far and stop even the threats. But, But Zelensky told me that you guys are all scared. I asked him, how come you're not scared of poking the bear? He said... Because we live in this neighborhood. Yeah. We know him. We know what it takes. And we have to keep going. You mentioned going. World War III. I remember vividly uh, Nancy Pelosi and others at the very beginning of the discussion of whether or not the, the uh, polls can you I mean, excuse me, that the U.S. bases in the NATO areas can be used to transfer planes. Remember, that was yes, the first big, big deal. Big, big deal. Didn't happen. 
And the answer was no, because it will cause World War III. Each weapons system was, prior to the West sending it to Ukraine, viewed as a potential escalator, right? Mm -hmm. HIMARS was in that category. Tanks were in that category. And then over time, Mm -hmm. the West sends them. And Russia, to your point, does not escalate. They don't drop a tactical nuclear weapon, et cetera. So there's a view, and you know this uh, better than me, in Europe, among some, particularly in the East, that, that, the, that some in the West exaggerated that threat, right? The threat of Russia mm-hmm. you know, going ballistic at each step. And now you have F-16s, which were always a red line. They're like, oh, well, we're not going to go that far, but now it appears they are going to go. And then the question is, did you wait too long to truly enable Ukraine in this counteroffensive to gain the territory they need? Now, when I speak to folks like General Milley and others in the military, mm-hmm. the argument they will make, you know, to to your point, Dana, is that we give them the weapons that they need and that they're capable of handling at the time. You can't just drop an F-16 in Ukraine and say, fly it. It Mm -hmm. takes weeks and months to train up. But you can start training, right, Jim, you know better than anyone, you can start training them on these things months prior. They probably should have started earlier. You know, one thing they talk about now is like they have to teach the Ukrainian pilots English, you know, to to work on the system. And many will speak it, but speak it to a level that they can handle the system and the training and that kind of stuff. And you're thinking, well, it could have started, you know, 18 months ago on these kinds of steps. Yeah. So there's certainly frustration. But, you know, Biden and Zelensky together at the U.N. makes a very important double-headed whammy. You know, Biden, the only head of the Security Council who's going to be there. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity for him to really own this week. The others aren't going to be there. That's a great point. Well, and Zelensky coming to Washington, which yeah. is critical for mm-hmm. the Congressional. And the U.N. Both chambers do support as a majority, however... Yes within the Republican conference in the House is, is a significant problem. Dan, I want to ask you, because I think the, the Republican frontrunner looms over all of this, uh, particularly on the world stage. Everyone's mm-hmm. watching what's happening here. Um, and the Republican frontrunner made uh, Israel and aligning with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, uh, and pushing forward on those issues, a central part of what he did in office, mm-hmm. even if it seemed more like he was just doing what advisors said was uh, smart for him to do. He has once again... Uh, on his social media account, basically tried to target a subset of American Jews, which I don't, I've never understood, but I want to read it. It said, uh, just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel because you believe false narratives. Let's hope you learn from your mistakes, make better choices moving forward. Happy New Year. The reason why I don't want to just let this pass Mm -hmm. as like Trump on social media being Mm -hmm. crazy because that's what Trump does on social media is because I'm trying to think of the the construct of if a Democratic lawmaker said that conservative Catholics were ruining the country because Mm -hmm. of their views, if you're Catholic and vote Republican, you should, you're ruining the country. People would freak out. Yeah. And rightfully so. And rightfully so. so. This is, I'm going to borrow Christian's favorite phrase to be truthful and not neutral here. There is nothing, nothing even close to appropriate about what he said. In fact, this is classic Trump trying to divide subsets of America, divide uh, uh, people who are already, he he sees that there are not just embers, but there are flames of division. Uh, within the Jewish community and within uh, American culture when it comes to to Israel. It is so incredibly dangerous. I did a whole hour on on, uh, anti-Semitism growing in America, and a big part of it was, according to expert after expert who looked at the research and looked at at the threats and the timelines, Donald Trump saying things like this, pushing the door open a little bit, and white supremacists and people who have 
have been feeling this way for a long time, shoving the door open. And he knows full well that this kind of rhetoric is incredibly dangerous. And he just thinks that it's advantageous to him. And he does it. And it's terribly dangerous from that political point of view and religious and cultural mm-hmm. and, and social point of view, but also geostrategic, geopolitical malpractice. Donald Trump, assisted by his buddy, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the, the crown prince of you know, Saudi Arabia, decided to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal and all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is presiding over the assault on democracy in the one democratic state in the Middle East. These are really, really important things to put into context. And then to have this kind of stirring mm-hmm. on top of everything else. Well, it'll just... be fascinating because President Biden will meet yes. on the sidelines. Of yes, and not to the White House notice. And, and I don't know. Is he going to the White House? Uh, not that I know. Netanyahu? No, that's, that's why when, when you speak to, to, okay. to officials in Europe, as I, as, I know, as I know you do, and, and this is a word I heard from a senior administration official last week about their conversations with Europeans about the possible return of Trump. It's not a political statement. It's just how people are viewing this. The, the word is terrified. And that is because when you look at this mm-hmm. divide, democracy versus authoritarianism, Trump on, on Ukraine, on Russia, on a whole host of issues, they see as a, as a sea change coming if he were to be reelected. That's how they see it. This is a conversation writ large I think we could have for multiple hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad you brought you that guys, up. We appreciate you guys coming it's in. It's very important Thank to bring you very that much. up. Well, this just ended a new video. We showed it at the start. We're going to continue to show it throughout the hour. The five Americans freed from prison in Iran finally arriving on U.S. soil. We'll speak to the uncle of one of the released detainees coming up. Meantime, the Wall Street Journal reporter imprisoned in Russia on baseless espionage charges will be back in court this morning fighting for his freedom. Our own Matthew Chance is there. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Just moments ago, look at that, five Americans returning to U.S. soil after spending years imprisoned in Iran. They were freed yesterday as part of a deal that includes unfreezing $6 billion in Iranian money and releasing five Iranians in U.S. custody. The man you see there that embraced Siamak Namazi, an Iranian-American businessman who was arrested in 2015. You see him as first hug to his son. He spent nearly eight years in prison, becoming Iran's longest-held American prisoner. Earlier this year, he described his ordeal to our Christian Amanpour. I, I think um, the short answer is that I've always been made to feel that my very humanity has been taken away from me, not just my freedom. You can hear the strain in his voice. Joining me now in studio is his uncle, Hussein Namazi, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. The first time you're seeing those pictures of him on U.S. soil, what does it feel like? Well, the whole fa- we are a big family, and the whole family went through such a lot of ups and downs. Uh, knowing what he's going through in prison, eight years, uh, subject to torture in the first two years, and then to finally see him come down the plane, it was, I mean, uh, no words can describe it because uh, really the whole family has been through hell and praying for this moment. And finally it's arrived and we are all so jubilant uh, that the, the moment has come. Did you think this day might not come? Uh, well, there were so many occasions when we thought that 
he's going to be released. And, and then our hopes were dashed. And finally we realized, no, this is no point in uh, being happy that the, there's prospects of him being released till he's really out of the airspace of Iran. And uh, this came about, and really it's for the whole family, it's, it's the, great, the greatest news we could have uh, expected. Have you spoken to him? Well, he arrived uh, with um, uh, my sister-in-law, Effie, his mother. Uh, it was a couple of hours after midnight. So uh, we said we are all going to give him space sure. because this will be the first time that the four of them are going to be together yeah. in eight years, yeah. have their first breakfast together in eight years. And uh, they are housed in a very nice uh, area of for two weeks, and I'm sure that Siomak will have to undergo some medical yeah. treatments for the first three days. And uh, then we hope the family can go to Washington and link up with him the second week. You know, we, we, we all know his name because of his ordeal, but you know the person. Can you just remind everyone what he is like as a human? Well, he's such a likable person. And to give you an example, when he was in prison, he would telephone all the uncles and aunts and siblings. And he was so resilient, instead of us trying to cheer him up, he was cheering us up. Really? Knowing that what we are going through for him. He wanted to show that, look, don't, don't worry. I'm good. I'm, I'm doing good. Selfless. So you can just imagine how resilient he is. Yet he endured some of the most terrible inhumane conditions in Tehran's notorious Evin prison. His lawyer was on CNN yesterday, and I want to play for you and for other people how his lawyer could finally speak openly about what those conditions were actually like. I want to warn people this is very hard to hear, but here's what he went through for eight years. Here it is. He was beaten, he was tased, he had um, electrodes connected to his genitals. And, you know, this is all bad enough, but actually the worst thing they did to him over that time was after his dad was detained. Um, they showed him the video of, uh, of uh, him being detained and Simak knew his father was clearly in the prison somewhere, not far from him as it turned out. And, you know, about a month later, they came to him and said, we have some, some sad news for you, your father just died. And we're really sorry, but you're not gonna be allowed out to go to his funeral. And they left him that way in the cell for a full week until they came and told him, well, actually, we were just joking about that. Mental torture, physical torture, when you hear that. In fact, uh, I heard him yesterday saying that for the first time that they had told Siomak that his father had passed away and that they didn't tell him for a week let him know for a week that his father was not, and that they would not allow him to go to his father's memorial. Yeah. It, it took a week for them to finally tell him, no, your father is alive. And uh, you can imagine the yeah. uh, torture that you undergo when you know your father's past and uh, you can't even attend his memorial. Today brings so many emotions for you and your family, I know. But there are so many other families out there whose loved ones are detained, wrongfully detained overseas. Can, can you speak to them this morning with the hope that you now feel given Siamak's return? 
Yeah, well, there are still a lot of uh, uh, people detained in Iran and uh, everywhere else. Uh, we never gave up hope. Uh, there was always, we knew that there were, a lot of efforts were being made for their release. It, it took a lot, three, uh, uh, it was during the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and find three administrations to finally get him released. Uh, I say there's always hope, and uh, it, took a, it took a long time, but finally, after eight years, the longest surviving uh, hostage in yeah. Iran. Hussein Namazi, thank you very much. I am yeah. so happy for you and your family, and I bet you can't wait to hug him. Thank you, and you're right. You can't wait to hug him and uh, the whole family, because his mother also was fantastic in saying, I will not leave Iran until I'm accompanying my son. Yeah. And she stayed firmly by his side, and finally they were both able Home. to get out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Phil. Great news. Well, President Biden defending his age as experience in fiery remarks last night. We're going to tell you what he said, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis attacking former President Trump for his abortion stance. I think all pro-lifers should know uh, that he's, he's preparing to sell you out. Well, just like the first GOP debate, former President Trump plans to skip the second one, too. It's scheduled for next Wednesday at the Reagan Presidential Library in California. Instead, Trump plans to head to Detroit to give a primetime speech to more than 500 workers, including current and former members of the Auto Workers Union. Of course, it's a union that's currently on strike. We're also learning this morning the Trump campaign has produced a radio ad that will begin running today in Detroit and Toledo, Ohio, to align the former president with those auto workers. The campaign is also considering the possibility of having Trump make an appearance at the picket line. Joining us now is the writer of Very Serious Newsletter, Josh Barrow, and CNN political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones. Um, Van, I'm fascinated by the economic elements of what's going on between the big three and the UAW right now, but I think the political elements are enormous, and that is... Uh, Rank-and-file union workers have not been as aligned with Democrats since the emergence of Trump um, as they traditionally have been. And this is a moment that creates potentially an opportunity. Uh, it's a big tug-of-war. Uh, union Joe versus, versus the, the blue-collar billionaire. I mean, mm -hmm. there's this uh, demographic which for a long time was presumably blue. Uh, blue-collar, blue voters. That was presumptive. And then in 2016, that blue wall cracked, and it cracked because of Donald Trump's appeal on NAFTA and that kind of stuff. And suddenly, there's a jump ball. And this year is uh, maybe the biggest uh, labor upsurge in a generation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 300,000-plus American workers on strike right now, you know, from Hollywood workers to, to uh, people on, on, the, on the front lines in the auto industry. And labor matters. Uh, unions matter. And they're a jump ball. And so you see uh, Donald Trump reaching in there and trying to grab uh, at the heartstrings of those, those workers. Now, the reality is uh, none of his policies are going to be great for those workers. Uh, Joe Biden's got policies that, that would be fantastic for those workers. But, but, but right now, it's more about the optics. But not all of them. I mean, this is the, you brought this up with the acting labor secretary that was so interesting, Julie Sue, and that is the issue of the Biden push for electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. I mean, this internal memo from May from the UAW reads, the federal government is pouring billions into the electric vehicle tran transition, 
with no strings attached, no commitment to workers. We want to see national leadership have our back on this before we make any commitments. And that is what Republican uh, politicians are capitalizing on saying they're putting the green economy ahead of you. Yeah, that's what Trump is trying to make the, the issue of this strike about. And I mean, you know, the, the green vehicle transition is, is putting a significant financial strain on the, on the automakers and requiring large capital investments. That's money that can't Explain at least Explain to people why. Because they have to, they have to build all of these new factories and facilities. Essentially, they yeah, and often change. they're not non-unionized workers well, doing that. And, and then that's the second part of it. The, the electric vehicles are less labor-intensive to build than than combustion engine vehicles, and it's unclear exactly how much of that supply chain will be unionized on the way up. And so some of that you can work with the union on, and you you could have policies that would promote more unionization there. But there's still the bigger issues of money going into capital instead of labor, and ending up with a less labor-intensive process. And so I, that is the opportunity for for Trump to. Capture capitalize on here. The problem is that he's not really fluent in this language. Mm-hmm. And he's been out there attacking the head of the United Auto Workers Union. I don't see That's any clear smart. indication that the, that the rank and file is upset with their own union leader right now. I mean, ultimately, he's a business leader. And I don't think it's his first language to be talking mm-hmm. to, to labor about why labor needs to get what it, what, it, uh, what it deserves in a negotiation with business. And only so much of this can be ascribed to public policy. But I think that is where he sees the opening there. But I mean, at the margins, if he's pulling off a couple percentage points here and there from traditional Democratic voters, it's a win for him, whether or not he can speak the language or not. Um, I want to ask you, Josh, actually both of you, the, the back and forth on abortion that we've seen in the Republican primary um, has been fascinating based on historical precedent, but also what it means for now. I want to play what pre- former President Trump said and then the response from Ron DeSantis. DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think that I, I goes think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. Other than certain parts of the country, you can't, you're not going to win on this issue. But you will win on this issue when you come up with the right number of weeks. Anytime he did a deal with Democrats, whether it was on budget, whether it was on the criminal justice first step act, uh, they ended up taking him to the cleaner. He's going to make the Democrats happy with respect to right to life. I think all pro-lifers should know uh, that he's, he's preparing to sell you out. I mean, I think that uh, I think Democrats are reasonably afraid that Trump will succeed in muddying the waters on this issue. Trump knows that this issue has been a political loser for Republicans. There was news reporting about his instant reaction to the Dobbs decision and how he basically was just focused on how this was going to be a huge political problem. Um, and Democrats have arguments to make about, you know, this is, this is all his fault. He appointed these people to the judiciary who brought down this decision. He's made comments in the past about you need to punish women for having abortions. So they can make an argument that, you know, he's just he's trying to pander to voters who are who are pro-choice. And ultimately, he's going to do what a Republican president would do and try to restrict abortion. Um, but he's getting to the more to, to the more the politically stronger ground here. And he's only helped by the fact that he will be attacked from his right. If he gets pro-life activists attacking him as a squish, if he has Ron DeSantis attacking him as a squish, that only helps him in a general election to say, yeah. see, I bucked my party yep. on one of the most unpopular positions of my party. I think it's a, I think it's a political problem Do, for Democrats. Does he get to have it both ways? Does he get to say, hey, conservative voters, I told you I would appoint pro-life justices to the Supreme Court, and I got three. Oh, and by the way, the way that Republicans, the other Republicans are dealing with it now with these six-week bans, et cetera, that's not right either. So I get it. Bo- I win both ways. Uh, that, that's, that's what he's trying to do. You know, the Republicans are the, do- the, the dog that caught the car, and now the car is backing up over them over and over again. That's the problem the Republicans have on this issue. They got what they wanted, but what they wanted is so unpopular that it's, you know, it costs them 
uh, full control of Congress and a bunch of other stuff, and more pain to come for Republicans in general because there's more pain to come for women in general. Uh, You have these horror stories that are coming out at the local level of people who have ectopic pregnancies, Mm -hmm. almost dying, having to go to a different state, doctors afraid to help women. So this, which the reason this is an issue isn't for some ideological reason. It's because actual human beings are suffering and afraid. Actual doctors are scared to help save lives because they don't want to go to prison in multiple states across the country. So this is a catastrophe that's unrolling across the country. And so uh, uh, Donald Trump is smart enough to know he doesn't want to be a part of that. So he is going to, since he lies about the lies that he lies about, this is his whole thing, he's going to try to play both sides against the middle and run up, run up the, 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 the middle of that. Van, Josh, thanks, thanks guys. guys. We appreciate it. Big question this morning. Why did nearly a nearly $100 million F-35 fighter jet crash, first disappear and then crash in South Carolina? Why did the government need the public's help to find it? That's ahead. And a high school band director tased by police after officers say he refused to stop a performance. We're going to show you the newly released police body camera footage. That's ahead. So take a look. This is new video just into CNN. This is debris from an F-35 fighter jet that we told you yesterday, right, had vanished for more than 24 hours. The military announced last night, though, they had located the wreckage two hours northeast of Joint Base Charleston in South Carolina. That jet disappeared on Sunday. We are told the pilot was able to eject safely, taken to a medical facility. But somehow the military struggled to find the actual jet, even going as far as asking the public for help. Congresswoman Nancy Mace said, what many were thinking, quote, how the hell do you lose an F-35? How is there not a tracking device? And we're asking the public to what? Find a jet and turn it in? Joining us now, someone who knows a lot more about this than we do, retired senior F-35 test pilot, Billy Flynn. He has more than four decades of flying experience. Also, I should note you work for Lockheed, the manufacturer of the F-35. Can you answer Nancy Mace's question this morning, Billy? Good morning to you all. I think it is the most awkwardly worded news or press release of all time. It had the entire world uh, off chasing this story. Uh, it would have been um, better worded and the public wouldn't have been as alarmed. It, it's not unusual to, to imagine it would be difficult to find an aircraft wreckage out in rural, uh, in this case, North Carolina. So it took 24 hours to find the airplane and we all had a news cycle to talk about it. Um, I, I think it, it wasn't necessarily that people were alarmed, more just perplexed, right? And I think part of that is because you think from the technology side, with between radar systems and tracking and anything else, and again, I'm not fluent in this language at all, that's why you're here, but what, why is none of that helpful in a case like this? Well, let's, let's remember that NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, I'm certain would have been able to track that through it all. But now we're trying to coordinate agencies to go find wreckage. All of that takes time. And we, the public, were all off on a tangent because of the news release while the military was gathering resources to go out and, and search what was ultimately a, a large area to finally wow. find the wreckage. And, and remember, most importantly, the pilot was safe. So initial focus yeah. was on the pilot. But then let's go find the airplane. That is the the main issue is, was the pilot safe? Yes, he ejected safely. But I just want to ask you sort of broader picture about these crashes and the safety component here, because there have been several crashes involving military aircraft in testing, right? You had the F-18 crash near San Diego. You have have this. 
And there was a study just three years ago in 2020 that Congress commissioned. And what they found is that pilots across the military are not getting enough flying hour in these aircraft. Do you think that is a factor? Does it concern you? Well, let's talk about the really the rash of accidents in the Marine Corps. First of all, three separate accidents that now have, has prompted the Commandant of the Marine Corps to call a two-day pause to flying operations to get all the units to focus on uh, safe operations, uh, flight safety itself. And, and in the pace of the Marine Corps, where everybody's running pretty hard, and remembering that military aviation is inherently dangerous, taking two days off to focus on safety is really smart and end and this bad streak. Overall, pilots do not fly as many flying hours as they did in the past, certainly in, in the heyday of my flying. And yes, that ultimately contributes to their, uh, their ability to, to operate at high tempo all the time. Mm -hmm. all right. uh, Billy Flynn, Let's fascinating conversation. Let me throw one more thing out there sure. to tell you that the F-35 has one of the most impressive safety records in, in, its, in its lifetime of, compared to any other fighter aircraft in the Western world's history. And this accident has us focusing on the aircraft, but really the fleet itself, almost a thousand of F-35s 30, F flying now are remarkably safe. That's an important point. Billy Flynn, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Pleasure. Good talking to you. Well, ahead, what does the future look like for Russia's private military group, the Wagner Group, now that the leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, is dead? We have an exclusive report from our Clarissa Ward ahead. These are the first images of Wagner fighters in the country since Prigozhin's death. So they're clearly still very much a presence here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Nearly one month after Wagner boss Evgeny Prigozhin died in a plane crash, Russia has been engaged in a high-stakes scramble to centralize his empire on the African continent. One of those outposts is in the Central African Republic. CNN's Clarissa Ward explains how Russia's influence there through Wagner may be changing. In the Central African Republic, the message from Wagner is clear. It's business as usual. Less than one month after their boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was killed in a plane crash, mass mercenaries still guard the president and cut an intimidating figure on the streets of the capital. Faces covered as Wagner protocol dictates, they are unapproachable and untouchable. These are the first images of Wagner fighters in the country since Prigozhin's death. So they're clearly still very much a presence here in Bombay. That presence runs deep. The markets are full of cheap sachets of vodka and beer made by a Wagner-owned company. And the locals seem to like it. They say they don't drink French beer, only Russian beer. We've come back to the center of Prigozhin's empire in Africa, right as his death raises questions for the regimes he protected and the mercenaries whose loyalty he inspired. Our last visit was in Wagner's early days here. Run like the mafia, providing guns and fighters and propaganda in return for gold, diamonds and timber, using intimidation and brutality along the way. 
that car full of Russians been following us for quite some time. We don't know why. We don't know what they want. But in this lawless, war-scarred country, one of the poorest in the world, that ruthlessness and the security it brought is celebrated by many. Welcome to Guantikov's Palace. Wow, that is quite the T-shirt. Yes, beautiful T-shirt. Presidential advisor Fidel Guanjica says the nation is in mourning for Wagner's dead leader. He was my friend. He was my friend, best friend, a friend of all Central African people. Why exactly was Mr. Prigozhin so popular here in your mind? Because our country was in war. So Mr. Prig uh, Mr. Uh, Putin gave us soldier with the Prigozhin. So aren't you nervous now that he's dead, that things might change? Mr. Putin called our president. He told him that everything will be like yesterday. Nothing will be changed, nothing. But according to a diplomatic source here, hundreds of Wagner fighters left the Central African Republic in July after Prigozhin's failed mutiny. Those who remain, including his top lieutenants, have agreed to work for the Russian Ministry of Defense. Fighters have already been pulled back from frontline outposts to population centers in an effort to cut costs, the source says. What's less clear is what becomes of Wagner's civilian presence here. This is one of the last places that Prigozhin was seen alive during his final tour across Africa. It's called the Russian Cultural Center, only it has no connection to Russia's official cultural agency and was run until recently by Prigozhin's closest associate here. Photographs taken on that visit show a new face, a woman known as Nafisa Kiryanova. After days of asking for permission to visit, we decide to film covertly. So, but you were here then when Yevgeny Prigozhin, when he was here in the photographs. There's the photographs of you with Prigozhin together. Uh, oh my God, can you show me that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just over in that corner. Yeah. Here you are. Okay. Just to... <laughs> okay, that's good. And this is Mr. Bergen, though? Yeah. How was he? I don't know. Do you think he knew they were going to kill him? Oh my gosh. <laughs> what is the question there? Who knows such things? What does it mean for your work here? Does it change anything? Does it change anything if, uh, I don't know, the president of your country dies? Does it mean that your country stops to exist? She shows us one of their daily Russian classes. As we step back outside, we see a Wagner fighter. Hi, how are you? You can just make him out retreating to the back of the center, where, according to the investigative group The Century, Wagner sells its gold and diamonds to VIPs and manages its timber and alcohol operations. A person? No. Yeah. Can, can we see what's there? That's weird. Yeah, actually, so what are you going to see there? Like most of Wagner's activities here, it's clear there is still so much that is hidden from view. 
We've pushed the visit far enough. It's time to go. No matter who takes over here, Western diplomats say they don't expect much to change. At the local Orthodox Church, the Greek lettering has been painted over. Its allegiance now is to the Russian patriarchy. And even in the skies above the empire Prigozhin built, Russia's dominance lives on. Clarissa Ward, CNN, Bongi. Clarissa Ward, welcome back. And thank you. What amazing reporting. All right, breaking this morning, this new video showing five Americans freed from prison in Iran. They are finally home back on U.S. soil. We'll speak to someone who was on that plane and critical in facilitating their release. Well, good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We are so glad you're joining us. It is a day of very big news. Some good news to bring you as well. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, September 19th. And this is... The breaking news, they are back in America. Those five U.S. citizens who were held prisoner in Iran just touched down near Washington, D.C. And this morning, President Biden speaks at the United Nations as he confronts multiple crises on the world stage. Back home, however, shut down drama in the House. Tempers are flaring with some Republican lawmakers calling their colleagues lunatics. Hmm. More auto workers could be going on strike at more plants. The union chief says if there is no progress in these negotiations by noon on Friday, more workers will walk off the job. And a high school band director tased by police after a football game. The new body camera footage just released. CNN This Morning starts right now. We have breaking news this morning. Take a look. New video just in shows five Americans freed from prison in Iran back on U.S. soil. Ahmad Shargi, Murad Tabaz, and Siamek Namazi, along with two Americans who have decided not to be named publicly. They all landed just outside of the nation's capital moments ago after flying from Tehran to Qatar. They were released as part of this broader deal that includes unfreezing of $6 billion in Iranian funds. The freed Americans will have the option to participate in a Department of Defense program to help them acclimate back to life here. Meanwhile, another American is still detained overseas. A Moscow court is hearing an appeal from lawyers representing detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich. CNN's Matthew Chance was inside that courtroom and spoke to Gerskovich, tried to speak to Gerskovich. Uh, Matthew, how did he look? What did you say? Did you get any response? Yeah, tried to speak to him, but, but failed, unfortunately, Phil. I'm outside the court now uh, because we were kicked out, essentially. But, you know, this is one of the few opportunities we get uh, to get face-to-face with Evan Gershkovich, 31-year-old uh, Wall Street Journal reporter who's being held in pre-trial detention uh, on espionage charges. The first journalist, American journalist, to be uh, charged with something like that uh, since, the, since the Cold War. So it's a, it's a massive problem between the two countries. We were granted access to the courtroom where his lawyers are appealing his pre-trial detention. But shortly afterwards, we were, you know, kicked out. Take a look at what happened. Come on, come on, come on. Go ahead. No, come, come here. Come here. Oh, all right. Okay, well, we've been let... Okay, we've been let into the courthouse where you can see Evan Gershkovich is in there. Hi, Matthew from CNN. Is that, are you holding up all right? No, no questions? Okay, understood. Okay, well, there he is standing there. You can see him looking relaxed. Um, all the cameras being allowed in 
to take a close-up look at him. The, the security is very tight here. What's the problem? The, the vast motion. Yes. Okay, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Okay, let's get well, Phil, they, they see it. I mean, the, the, the court hearing is still underway right now. Uh, we're expecting, because this has happened several times in the past, that the appeal against his pre-trial detention uh, will be rejected. Uh, certainly, there's a big effort underway uh, from the White House, from the Biden administration, to try and organise a deal to release Evan Gershkovich, as well as Paul Whelan, another American, a former Marine, who's also being held um, uh, under charges or being accused and actually being convicted of, of espionage uh, in this country. But so far, a serious offer has the Biden administration has framed it, uh, to get those two men out of Russian prisons has not been responded to effectively uh, by the Russians. So, yeah, this is an ongoing saga, which we're going to be covering very closely, Phil. Matthew Chance, thank you uh, to you and your team. As we saw you get in there, try to ask the important questions facing a lot of opposition. Obviously, we really appreciate that. It's remarkable to see. Well, this morning, President Biden will deliver a foreign policy speech at the United Nations General Assembly. He will promote his administration's achievements around the globe. He's also expected to call for more international support for Ukraine. But as several key heads of state will be absent, concerns are increasing about what the U.N. can hope to achieve. Kayla Tashi, who was at the table with us earlier, now outside the U.N., that's the big question, right? What do these words actually mean? What action, if any, do they result in? What's the goal? Well, the goal is to get some sort of unity among like-minded nations that are here at the UN. The problem, Poppy, is that there aren't as many as there have been in prior years, in part because the multilateral summit calendar is extremely packed this fall. Many of these leaders were already at the G20 in India just a few weeks ago. But in just a couple hours, President Biden is going to take the lectern here at the United Nations for the third speech to the General Assembly of his presidency. And White House officials say that he's going to be raising a few themes. You mentioned the fact that he's going to be talking about the need to deliver more aid to Ukraine. He'll also talk about the importance of democratic values in a world where authoritarian regimes are on the rise. He'll also talk about the need to marshal resources for sustainable development, climate, infrastructure projects around the world. And that address is going to set the table of sorts for some high-profile meetings that the president will have throughout this week. He'll be meeting with the U.N. Secretary General today, also the leaders of five Central Asian nations, where the conversation will focus on how to counter China in that region before meeting with Brazil's president and the prime minister of Israel tomorrow. But just as much focus, guys, is going to be on who is not here in New York, namely the leaders of China, Russia, U.K., and France, the other permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, which is the forum where the U.S. has been condemning the war in Ukraine for nearly two years at this point. And so it raises real questions about the effectiveness 
of the U.N. and specifically the Security Council as a forum for condemnation and to discuss these critical issues. Now, senior administration officials say it remains essential and important. And in their words, the president understands the value of showing up. And that's what he's going to do today in, a, in hopes of boosting uh, his global agenda and also his image here at home. Yeah. Poppy, Phil. Kayla, thank you for the reporting outside of the United Nations on a huge day for the president. Well, coming up, California Governor Gavin Newsom suing oil companies for contributing to the climate crisis. We're going to be joined by California's Attorney General, Rob Bonta, where that lawsuit goes from here. And later, a surfer about to go pro was told he'd never walk again. How he got back on the board and is helping others do the same. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This is not uh, conservative republicanism. This is stupidity. They don't know how to take yes for an answer. Uh, It's a clown show. If you want to have a stronger hand, run better candidates and win more elections. You keep running lunatics, you're going to be in this position. I think we're headed for a government shutdown with no end in sight. Uh, Part of it is we're not having real conversations. Take a shot at me. I'm going to say something. You know, what did I, didn't, I, didn't we go through this back in January? 62275, baby. I ain't worried about none of that stuff. As you can see there, tempers flaring a bit in the House. House Republicans are in chaos as time runs out to prevent a government shutdown. Congress now has less than two weeks to pass at least a stopgap spending bill. And conservative hardliners, they are lining up against Speaker Kevin McCarthy's proposed short-term deal to avoid a shutdown. He's also facing the threat of potentially being ousted as Speaker altogether. Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, a Republican from Indiana, wrote yesterday, it is a shame that our weak speaker cannot even commit to having a commission to discuss our looming fiscal catastrophe. Our children will be ashamed of another worthless Congress. Congresswoman Sparts joins us now from the Capitol. There's a lot of things I want to get to, including uh, the president's remarks up at the U.N. today and President Zelensky's visit down to Washington. But I want to start there. The decision to release this statement, uh, this was not subtle. Why? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's unfortunate for me to see what's really happening in our country. And I take full responsibility for the leadership of my party because I truly believe if we don't stand up and fight for the people, there is no one left there. So, you know, I never vote for leadership in another party. I never support it. But leadership of my party should be accountable to the American people. And we should never be in a situation like that at the end of September, not be able to deal with authorization, with budgeting. This is a number one issue that Congress should have dealt for most of the time. And unfortunately, we spend very little time dealing with our main functions, and everyone does a lot of entertainment. But we have people's lives at stake, and we cannot do politics and circuses. And I always, every leader should take full responsibility. And Kevin should take responsibility for his failure to lead on this. And I offered my help. Listen, this is one issue that I actually have an expertise. I could help. I offered to help, but ultimately, it's a decision of a leader if leaders want to lead or not. I want to play Speaker McCarthy's response to your statement. Take a listen. I learned in life, um, anybody who criticizes you has never worked harder than you. And I mean, if, if Victoria's concerned about fighting stronger, I wish she would have run again and not quit. I mean, I'm not quitting. I'm going to continue working for the American public. The speaker that is referencing your decision uh, that you announced earlier this year not to seek re-election, what's your response 
to what he said? Well, I think it's kind of, you know, if he wished me to stay, he, he might, his wishes might come true. He might not be too happy with the wishes. But let me tell you one thing, you know, you, it's one thing to fight, to get a position, and go and tell different things. But another thing is to fight for the issues and go in the trenches and win these issues. There is a difference, and I haven't seen hard work in anyone in this Congress actually to fight something for we the people, and it is tough because you have a machine coming at you, a lot of special interest groups attacking you with big money. The Senate is so corrupt that we cannot even move. And I told Kevin, I really don't care what the Senate doesn't say we're an independent branch of government under Republican leadership. We have to lead and we need to question what's happening in the Senate because we also equal chamber. Honestly, I think we're even stronger people because we have to run every two years and we have to be more accountable to the American people. But if no one stood up for this country, we're going to fail our children and people that die for it. And I am so sick and tired of BS. Congresswoman, I think allies of the speaker would say, look, no one could run this conference in terms, in terms of its current iteration structure and I think the divergences between the various elements of it, that it's not the speaker's fault so much as it is just the, the rank and file. What's your response to that? Well, listen, ultimately, he has a lot of input on that. If you know, you know, he didn't want to change the rules. He still have a bunch of, you know, on the... Uh, you know, our committee that decides who is going to be chairs of this committee. He has decision. He has six votes. We were trying to change some of that, but, you know, there is no input, really, you know, people can do. So he has a decision what his committee chair is doing. He has a decisions what kind of policy was set up, and also to set the tone on the top. I think it's extremely important. Yes, we have a diverse opinion. Yes, we have a lot of different views, but ultimately, that's what it takes leadership, to sit down, be a and really be able to get your troops on board with you to win, to win for something that is important. I used to say, let's pick three hills to die on and we'll take them. Now I'm just actually saying, let's just pick one issue where it's border security, where it's dealing with debt, where it's, you know, dealing with really insanities that happening with all of the, our departments that are becoming oppressive. We haven't even increased amount of, you know, decreased amount of unauthorized spending. We're not doing that. We're actually increasing. We're increasing all of the spending. We're increasing debt. We're increasing unauthorized spending. Right. And we're not securing the border. So what, what, what results did we deliver? Not talking points and messaging. What we actually deliver is only two times, unfortunately, in this Congress where we can deliver. It's debt ceilings and appropriation process. I hate to tell the rest of it. It's all of the messaging and circus. On the appropriations process, Ukraine funding has obviously been a central issue, not just for your conference, the entire Congress. President Biden will be speaking at the U.N. today. President Zelensky will be up there as well. Zelensky expected to come down uh, to speak to Capitol Hill. You have asked and requested the Biden administration to be more forceful and, and I think more detailed in its strategy, what it wants to do and the weapons that it can send. How concerned are you at this point that there will be a gap in terms of U.S. resources flowing to Ukraine because of these issues right now? Well, I think it's a very serious situation. I'll be honest with you. You know, you have to have American people on board. This never ends in wars. People are actually sick and tired. And American people need to be communicated the importance of us winning that war. But also, I think it's also important for us to push back an organization like UN that failed, not just Ukraine. They failed Africa. They failed Middle East. You know, I mean, 
we have to be not just go there, have dinners and all of these nice meetings in New York. We should say, you know what? You stand with us. We're going to stop this insanity. And we're going to help some, some countries and people to survive. Or we're not going to be funding, you know, this very wealthy, you know, high-paying jobs. American taxpayers get nothing because we still have to, you know, pay money directly to solve all these crises and help for people. I mean, millions of people are suffering around the world. Why are we doing that? I mean, even our, some, I just went to Middle East. I and some of our Middle Eastern partners that we're not giving money to this corrupt organization. Why American people should be? We shouldn't be stupid. We should be stern and tough and should be, send a very clear message. And I hope President Biden starts to get a little bit tough on all of the things because our aggressors are very tough around the world and ultimately they're after us. Yeah, it's an important week. Certainly the president and his team want to try and continue to unify uh, their alliances. Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, I know the issue of Ukraine is obviously very personal to you. I know you met with Zelensky uh, earlier this year. And I know what's happening on Capitol Hill right now is very personal to you as well as you have proven. Appreciate your time as always, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What, what an important conversation, Phil. All right, California has filed a big lawsuit against the world's biggest oil companies. Listen to Governor Gavin Newsom on CNN to Dana Bash. They knowingly misled people. They deceived people. As a consequence, we didn't take the kind of actions we would have taken to hold these big polluters accountable. And right now we're dealing with the consequences of it. The state accusing BP, Exxon, Chevron, Shell and ConocoPhillips and their trade group of downplaying the risks of fossil fuels, of lying and causing billions of dollars in damage. Let me read you part of the complaint, quote, Oil and gas company executives have known for decades that reliance on fossil fuels would cause these catastrophic results, but they suppress that information. Their deception caused a delayed societal response to global warming. I want to note Chevron's CEO made his first public comment on the lawsuit Monday on Bloomberg. He says this is the wrong approach on climate change. Listen. Climate change is a global issue. It calls for a coordinated global policy response, not piecemeal litigation that benefits attorneys and, uh, and politicians. His comments were echoed in a statement from Shell, which said the courtroom is not the place to address climate change. Let's talk about this lawsuit with the man who brought it, Attorney General of California, Rob Bonta. It's great to have you in studio. Thank you for being here. Uh, the American Petroleum uh, Institute, which is also a defendant in your case, calls it meriless, politicized an enormous waste of California's taxpayer resources. Explain why you think you can prevail in court. Exactly, the, the, the spin and distraction and deception that you expect to hear from a big oil that has been doing this for decades. They're very good at the deception and, and the distraction and the misleading information. Uh, this is a lawsuit holding them accountable for their actions in court. I'm sure they don't want to be there, uh, especially when California is the plaintiff, the largest uh, um, state in the nation, the fourth largest economy in the world, the biggest geographic entity and the largest economy to sue them. Um, they need to be responsible for their actions. So we're suing them in state court for decades of damage, destruction and deception. And we have the most broad sweeping causes of action of any case brought so far. So, Mr. Attorney General, help us understand your most powerful piece of evidence that you believe shows will show in court that company executives specifically knew that they were doing things that would cause this damage and that they suppressed it. 50, 60, 70 years ago, we have internal memos, internal speeches, industry commissioned studies, uh, notes on uh, memos, their words, not mine, take their own words for to it, where other. they say, yeah, they're talking internally, privately. 
they're acknowledging climate change, they're acknowledging the damage to the environment, they're acknowledging the extreme weather that will come. They predicted with terrifying certainty yeah. exactly where we are today, and they hit it, and they lied to the people. The people shouldn't be lied to. Reading through the complaint, I want to pull up um, a graphic that you have in your complaint and hope you can explain it to people what this is showing us. I believe this is from 1979. What are you alleging here? Can you see that? No. Okay. Well, it's how to predict the company, how predicted companies compare. You can take a look at it here on the piece of paper. This is a... What you're trying to show Yeah, here. I mean, the prediction of global warming. It, it shows that early on, based on their own studies, they knew that we would have climate change, we would have global warming, and the impacts, they called it devastating on, on the environment. And they also knew that there were alternative pathways for clean energy. They knew that about carbon sequestration and capture, and they suppressed those pathways to pursue a uh, profit-creating pathway of fossil fuels that is destroying the planet and leading people like my daughter to say, um, Dad, I, want, I love our family, but I might not want to have a family of my own because I think it's irresponsible to bring a new life onto a dying planet. And there's a whole generation of young people who think that. This reminds many of us who lived through the big tobacco litigation a lot of the model. And Governor Newsom said as much, that you are following the model of big tobacco. Ultimately, that led to billion-dollar settlements. Is that what you're looking for, or are you actually looking for mandated change of company operations? We're looking for a, an abatement fund, which is payment by the, the big oil companies to pay for the damage that they created. It's simple. They're responsible for their actions. They should pay for the damage they created. They have uh, put, stuck the bill with Californians to pay for lost homes, increased insurance, lost farms, health and, and, and risks and, 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 and greater cost to their health insurance. California shouldn't pay that. They should pay it because they created it. So it's an abatement fund to the tune of tens of billions of dollars uh, to pay for um, abatement, mitigation, and an adaptation. And that's what New York wanted. Um, but in 2021, New York City lost in the Second Circuit. And in 2018, San Francisco and Oakland lost similar attempts to sue big oil. They were approached legally a little bit differently. They were public nuisance complaints. But again, you know, you had regulations of these companies at that time Right, the argument can and probably will be made to you in court that these companies either responded to and followed those protocols or paid damages if those protocols were broken then. So why should they have to do it again now? How do you respond? Our causes of action are unique. We have a, a state law, uh, California public nuisance claim. We have multiple deception and false advertising claims. We have a failure to warn claim. We have a very unique, only in California claim for destruction of natural resources, mm -hmm. the most broad sweeping claims. And we put together a 134 page complaint that lays out in great detail their knowledge and their deception while they pursued endless profits, $200 billion in profits last year. Um, this, these cases have never got to the merits before. They have been wrapped up in a procedural uh, delay because big oil wants delay. Every year of delay is more uh, billions in profits for them. We can get to the merits now, and that's why we have brought this case, and um, we believe we're going to be successful in court. It's going to be fascinating to watch because many times as California goes, so the nation goes. Before you go, I do want to ask right. you about guns uh, because earlier this month, lawmakers in California voted for an 11 percent tax on guns and ammunition as a way to sort of push back against gun violence. The gun lobby calling that, quote, a tax on exercising a constitutional right. 
The governor has until October 14th to decide if he's going to sign that. Will he? Do you believe it's constitutional given the Supreme Court's decision last year? I believe it's constitutional. I support the bill. Uh, I hope and believe the governor will sign it. It's up to him, of course. Uh, that's one of his uh, great independent authorities and duties. And it's the same idea that, that an industry needs to pay for mm -hmm. the, the costs of the damage to its industry and can't externalize it to the, to the people. And we should have this fund, and I support it. This is different than what New Mexico's governor just did a few weeks ago in terms of banning guns in some public places. Do you believe what she did was constitutional? I think we need to comply with the new decision of Bruin. So yeah. that, is that a no? Um, on, that, on that case, I don't know all the details about their law. I know that we had just passed a concealed carry weapon law, uh, which is about con carrying uh, concealed weapons in public that is v completely Bruin compliant. You can do reviews of dangerousness of individuals before you give them a CCW, and uh, you can make sure that the guns are not brought into sensitive yeah. sites. And Bruin lays that out, and our, our law is completely compliant. Bruin, Bruin being the Supreme Court's decision on guns the last Supreme year Court for decision. our viewers. Yes. Thank you. Come back as we track this lawsuit. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Phil. Well, new this morning, five Americans who were detained for years in Iran are back on U.S. soil. We'll speak to the top hostage negotiator who is key to making it all happen. His response to Republicans' criticism of the deal. And just released new body camera video of an incident at a high school football game that resulted in a band director getting tased by police. Those details ahead. This morning, you've seen the pictures. Five Americans are back on U.S. soil after spending years in prison in Iran. They were freed yesterday as part of a deal that included unfreezing $6 billion in Iranian funds and releasing five Iranians in U.S. custody. President Biden celebrated the release, saying in a statement yesterday, quote, five innocent Americans who were imprisoned in Iran are finally coming home. Republicans, however, have been very critical of the move. Former President Trump said it set a terrible precedent. He added, once you pay, you always pay, and many more hostages will be taken. Then Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said this. Unfortunately, the deal that secured their release may very well be the latest example of President Biden rewarding and incentivizing Tehran's bad behavior. Over the past two and a half years, the administration's weakness and desperation have emboldened, emboldened a massive state sponsor of terror and would-be nuclear-armed aggressor. Now, our next guest will look familiar if you were watching the video of the plane touching down in the U.S. You can see him coming out of the plane first. He helped facilitate the return of the U.S. citizens. On behalf of the President of the United States and the Secretary of State, it's an honor to be the first to welcome you back to the United States of America and to freedom. That was U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, Roger Carsons, who joins us now. Uh, sir, I appreciate your time. Uh, I imagine it has been a fairly exhausting several days and probably say several months as well. I I'll get to the kind of the criticism in a second, but I want to start with you were on the plane. You were with uh, these five Americans. You were also with uh, the wife of one, the mother of another. Talk about that flight. Well, Phil, it was amazing. It's uh, very emotional. Um, I can say I probably haven't cried this much since I was a little kid. Uh, it was a chance to watch uh, five uh, different people uh, interact, seven people in total, interact in a way that was very amazing. I mean, this is the first time that they've had a chance to talk without being surveilled by the Iranian government in years. So to watch them kind of relax, lighten up, share laughs. And I had a chance to talk with each one individually, and I was really struck by their strength, their resilience, their hopefulness, 
and their love for their country. They were grateful that they were heading home. They were grateful to see their family members. And they were grateful that the American people came together to bring them home. I know uh, the administration has spoken often about the resources that are available uh, when these individuals return home. Uh, what's your sense of just how they're doing? I, I can't imagine the experience uh, that they're feeling right now. Yeah, I, I think they're doing great. To, to uh, watch them reconnect with their families was just an amazing event. Uh, families were, were hugging, crying. People at some points hadn't seen each other in eight years. Uh, I had a chance to hug and talk to a few of them myself, but also to watch the families interact. It was very nice to watch the Sharji family interact with the Dabaz family, the Dabaz family interact with the Namazi family. These people have become uh, quite close over the last few years, and it was good to watch that energy and that love and that happiness and joy of, uh, of watching this reconnection. But furthermore, I think they're doing well. They're, they're off right now in the, in, the, in the care of the Department of Defense at Fort Belvoir, going through post-isolation support activities, where they'll have a chance to not only get checked medically, but also to keep reuniting with their families in the coming days. Uh, this administration, with you running point, I think has had, uh, there's been a shift in terms of the willingness to try and get detained Americans home, or at least the, the willingness to be on the front foot on these issues. That brings with it criticism. I'm sure you've seen it uh, or heard it, not just here, but I think over the course of uh, the last several years. I played for you what Senate Minority Leader McConnell said, but I think what was more interesting to me is the uh, Congressman McCall, who said that money is fungible, right? If this $6 billion can be monitored every step of the way by the Treasury Department and the regime put in place, it just frees up $6 billion that doesn't need to be used on humanitarian aid. What's your response to that? Well, I'd say that, uh, first off, uh, this is a good deal. We essentially took Iranian money from a restricted account in South Korea and put it in a much more restricted account in banks in Qatar, where it's going to be monitored by the Department of Treasury, and it's only going to be used to buy humanitarian items like food, medicine, COVID vaccines, baby formula, things like that. Essentially, what we've done is we've taken one bank account, put it into a more restricted one, and told them that we're going to monitor uh, in a very restricted manner what they use it on. So to my mind, it's a good deal, because by doing those actions, we returned seven Americans. And that's a good news story. Uh you are always working on multiple things at once. We just saw this morning that uh, Evan Gerskovich, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter's pretrial detention was upheld at his appeal. Our colleague Matthew Chance was there in the court. I know you guys, for both Evan and Paul Whelan, have put what you believe to be a significant deal on the table or a substantive deal on the table. And up to this point, there had not been a response from Russia. Has there been any change in their posture? There's been no change in their posture, but that doesn't mean that we're not working on a few things on the side. We've stayed in close touch with the families. We've stayed in close touch with uh, the Russians, frankly, and we're going to find a way to work this out. Um, I, would, I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to find a release mechanism in the coming months. But uh, as you know, from watching the Iran deal and some of the other ones that we've had a chance to uh, do in the Biden-Harris administration, these things are hard. They're hard fought. They take time. And it really takes a whole community of people. And that means not just the federal government, but members in Congress and their staffs, uh, nonprofits, members of the media, members of the, the business community, everyone pulling together to bring these people home. And we're going to find a way to do that with Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich. Yeah, it's a position where you're never doing enough until you actually get it done, and then yeah. you're criticized for getting it done. Uh, I know this is the moment that you work towards, and I appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Roger Carsons, thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Phil. Authorities in El Paso say the city is on the cusp of a third wave of migrants arriving. Shelters are beginning to overflow. We are live on the ground there. 
And this incredible story, a surfer who suffered a life-changing spinal cord injury redefines the sport. Coy Wire is here to tell us why Jesse Billauer is his champion for change. Welcome back. Police in Birmingham, Alabama have released new body camera video of a high school band director getting tased after a football game. The authorities say it all started when officers asked both schools' band directors to stop performing so students and attendees would clear the stadium and not linger. The home team band stopped. The band director, Johnny Mims, quote, instructed his band to keep performing. That's what police say. Then officers attempted to take him into custody. Then this fight broke out. One officer claims that Mims hit a second officer, which he denies. He was then tased three times. This is very graphic. We want to warn you before we play it. Well, after all of this, Mims was charged with disorderly conduct, harassment, and resisting arrest. For his part, his attorney calls the incident an alarming abuse of power, and they plan to sue. Well, also this morning, El Paso, Texas, grappling with an overwhelming migrant surge as a local nonprofit warns the city is now on the, quote, cusp of a third wave of arrivals. This is local shelters have been over capacity for at least three weeks, and the border is seeing on average 1,200 encounters a day. CNN's Ed Lavendera live for us in El Paso, Texas, with more. Uh, and I think the big question, if this is the third wave, are we nearing a breaking point to some degree at the border? Well, that is the warning that many uh, non-government organizations and homeless shelters and adv migrant advocates are, are, are warning about. You know, across the U.S. southern borders, encounters are up to about 7,000 per day. Those are numbers that we have not really seen uh, since the end of Title 42 back in May. And here in El Paso, as you mentioned, about 1,200 encounters a, a day. And we're back to seeing, and this is, we should be clear, uh, as, as we've been here over the course of the last year, we're not seeing scenes like we saw of people here on the street, but there are a, a number of people once again uh, sleeping on the streets outside of shelters that are full here in El Paso. Uh, they're releasing about a thousand uh, people onto the streets per day. Many of those uh, can find shelter in shelters like this building here, but many of them, Phil, are at capacity so far. So that is the concern. Now, exactly why this is happening, uh, you know, it can be for a multitude of reasons. There's disinformation, uh, human smuggling, uh, disinformation that uh, convinces a lot of people to move in large groups at one time. Uh, but, you know, since the end of Title 42, uh, the numbers of migrants arriving here at the U.S. southern border had dropped dramatically. So this rise in migrants arriving now at the border is obviously a, a great deal of concern. The question is, is this just a temporary surge or something uh, that is going to get much worse and intensify in the, in the days and weeks ahead? Phil? Yeah, it is a critical question at that. Ed Lavendera, great reporting. Thank you. So now to my favorite part of the show all week, all this week, our series Champions for Change brings you stories about everyday people who are making big changes and lifting up humanity. Like Coy Wire's champion in the world of surfing, Jesse Billauer. He is a legend. He helped popularize a new style of surfing, earning a place in the Surfing Walk of Fame last month. But his work off the board may have won him the most fans. The feeling that I get when I'm on the water, that's when I feel the most free. 
When I was a kid, I fell in love with surfing. By the time I was a teenager, I was on the right path to becoming a professional surfer. And Surfer Magazine named me as like one of the top 100 surfers in the country. People, they don't understand how lucky they are mm. until something like that's taken away. Take us back to that day, March 1996. And the day was beautiful. The waves were really good. And I took off on a wave and pulled inside the barrel. And when I came out, the wave hit me in my back and I didn't have too much time to put my hands up. It was shallower than I thought and I hit my head on the, the bottom. My whole body just went limp and numb and I knew I couldn't move. After that, I woke up in the hospital on this rotating bed. When the doctor told me that I broke the sixth vertebrae in my neck and that I was paralyzed, I was devastated. I mean, like I'm 17 years old, I'm in high school, I'm about to be a professional surfer and now I'm paralyzed. All I wanted to do was just be a kid and be with my friends. And it was a difficult time because I didn't know what my life was gonna look like. Growing up for me, sports were my life, just like Jesse Billauer. My dream was to make it to the NFL. I made it, but in my sixth season, I had a really scary moment. I hit this guy and his head came down and slammed right on top of mine. And I got this burning sensation down my neck. There was this tingling sensation like pins and needles down my right arm and I didn't really have any strength in it. So I needed surgery. They put a plate and four screws keeping my fifth and sixth vertebrae together. Fortunately for me, I was able to come back, but not everyone who gets a spinal cord injury can make it out on the other side the same as they were before. What happened to Jesse? It probably would have completely ruined most of us, but Jesse found out a way to shine. And so it took a few years to really get back into the water to surf, because nobody was really doing this before me. Started doing it more often and figuring it out. Jesse Billauer is a trailblazer. He's one of the pioneers of adaptive surfing. The International Surfing Association created the World Parasurfing Championships in 2015. Jesse's won it three times. The thing is, Jesse not only got himself back up, he's now helping people around the world. He started his foundation, Life Rolls On. We take people with various disabilities, surfing, skateboarding, and now fishing. We offer these things free to the public. For us, having her not in pain all the time and happy, as you can see, it gets us through all the hard times. I never thought I could surf. And when I met you, it made a big difference in my life. It's amazing to be able to get back and to see the smiles on their face and the parents' face. And I mean, to me, that's priceless. At the end of the day, when the lights and the cameras and the people are all back at their house, to be paralyzed, lose that independence, that freedom, that's the real stuff that people need to like see. Surfing and all that's easy. Being paralyzed is hard. I don't think our circumstances truly define us because to me, I'm in a wheelchair. I shouldn't be able to surf, but I look at it like, I just do it in a different way. Figure out the strength with inside you, and then you can help other people. I'm Jesse Billauer, and I'm a surfer.
Jesse Bilauer is a champion for change, and he still surfs hard. He recently won the U.S. Open of Adaptive Surfing, and he inspires everyone who hears his message. He even inspired me so much that I caught my first wave on a surfboard. <laughs> his friends who help him, uh, Skyler, Brendan, Jesse, Matt, they helped me. You all rock. Uh, Jesse has a great Great tribe around him, including his sweet mom, Cecil, his dad, George, who has the best dad jokes. Remember, uh, all of Jesse's Life Rolls On events are changing lives, and they're free to the public, but it takes partners to make that happen. You can be part of the power. You can check it out at liferollson.org. I appreciate Coy's ability to show that he's athletic, because none of us had any idea. (laughs) uh, Coy, I was just going to say, like, of course you got up and looked perfect your first time on a surfboard. No, no, trust me. Uh, we should have shown the blooper reel because that <laughs> took a lot of effort. That is not easy to make it look easy. So, Jesse, I know you're watching at 8, 5.50 in the morning on the West Coast. I love you. Thank you. Keep inspiring. Keep uplifting the yeah. world, my man. Boy, we yeah. appreciate you, man. Poppy's right. These are the best parts of this week. It's true. You also need to be sure on that front to tune in Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Champions for Change one-hour special. You can see all of them. Bet. Coming up, cowboy boots, basketball shorts, and bikinis. Oh. Oh. The new Senate dress code has some upset about the changes and others contemplating questionable wardrobe choices. Terry Anton looking dapper. No, 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 no. It's your morning. Your tag is still on your suit, Harry. Morning TV, and Harry. Your tag's on your suit. Is here. Oh, I love you, Harry. The U.S. Senate just eliminated its dress code because you got this guy from Pennsylvania who's got a lot of problems. He wears like sweatshirts and hoodies and shorts, and that's his thing. We need to be lifting up our standards in this country, not dumbing down our standards in this country. And this is an example why. Republican presidential nominee Ron DeSantis slamming the Senate leadership for relaxing its dress code for lawmakers. A rule, why are you laughing? It's just, it was a very, it was motive. Because I, I said it. you should read this because these are like your hollow. No, but you said relaxing. <laughs> and then like. <laughs> I told Phil he couldn't wear a tie today because of relaxed dress code, but he did. It looks nice. We should get to Harry. A rule change that will allow Senator John Fetterman to wear his trademark hoodie and shorts on the Senate floor if he so chooses. And DeSantis isn't alone in this criticism. Senator Shelley Moore Capito called it terrible. Chuck Grassley thinks it, quote, stinks. Kevin McCarthy called it, quote, embarrassing. Senator Susan Collins joked that she plans to... This is funny. This is really funny. To yeah. wear a bikini tomorrow. Harry Anton is here with more without a tie. Good morning. Without a tie, and I also plan on wearing a bikini tomorrow. Look, uh, this, this, uh. Morning, this morning's number is men who wear suits at work. It's just 3% now in 2023, down from 14% in 2015. So the fact of the matter is, Pretty much no one's wearing suits except maybe Phil and I at this particular point. And if we look at shorts, okay, okay for for men to wear shorts at work. In 1955, just 16% of Americans said it was okay. Here's a dapper fellow there. In 2023, at least some of the time, we get 58%. We see John Fetterman, of course, with his trademark shorts over here. I'm glad you picked that picture. That was the natural picture I would have gone to as well. Of course. What about sneakers? Talk, Talk to me about footwear, Harry. Yeah, let's talk about what else is appropriate for men to wear at work at least some of the time. 73% of Americans say running, wearing running sneakers is appropriate at least some of the time. We got the former senator and now President Joe Biden branded ball cap 54% of the time. How about a graphic t-shirt? Look, Arnold Schwarzenegger looks fantastic at that. 53% of the time. We've become liberal in a lot of ways in our dress code, but there's one way we have not become liberal, 
How about appropriate for men to wear open-toed sandals at work at least some of the time? Just 44% of Americans say yes. The majority, 54%, say no. So I will not be wearing open-toed sandals anytime here at work. I'm going to just continue to wear these shoes, and you can wear your nice shoes as well. And that's why America is still great. Just to suit, since you're one of the 3%, can you show me real quick? Is there a tag on your suit? There, there is. I just want to make sure I saw that correctly. There um, is still a tag here. That's why you're a fashion icon. Harry Anton, we appreciate you, my friend. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. <laughs> That was amazing. Now to more serious news. You're looking at live images of the United Nations. This is the General Assembly. It's happening here in New York. President Biden today addressing the world. We should know President Zelensky of Ukraine just arrived. A lot you'll see ahead live right here on CNN. Stay with us through the day. We will see you back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.